The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. The early explorers thought they were seeing an untouched ground, and no, they were seeing a maintained environment. When Lewis and Clark came down the river, they encountered more people on the Columbia River than they did on the rest of their journey. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River System. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. The land and rivers of the Pacific Northwest were shaped by people, native people who lived here for countless generations before Lewis and Clark and the pioneers. In this episode, we'll hear highlights from a Confluence Story gathering in February in Vancouver, Washington. This was before COVID-19 put a stop to public events like this one. This gathering was a partnership with the City of Vancouver Water Resources Education Center, the Columbia Land Trust, and the Watershed Alliance of Southwest Washington. Our speakers were Mike Ayal, a Cowlitz Tribal Council member and historian, Sam Robinson, the Vice Chair of the Chinook Indian Nation, and David Lewis, a historian at Oregon State University and member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. We started by asking about what kinds of conservation practices Native people practiced long ago are still relevant today. Uh, that's pretty easy. There's a book uh, by Robert Boyd, The Indians, the Land and Fire. Uh, we were using prescribed burns for thousands of years. The critical piece is that the, uh, uh, our lore is that you could walk through the flames at their height. Uh, it's written about in uh, uh, James G. Swan's book, Three Years' Adventure in the Northwest Coast. Swan was Isaac Stevens' personal secretary. They're getting ready to go out and treat with the Indians. And Swan said, we must leave in mid-September for the natives will be up to their usual mischief. They didn't understand what was going on. And uh, uh, literally, you see it everywhere. I, I used to be our director of natural resources at Cowlitz, and uh, I was getting ready to, I was driving down the road, and I had this moment to where when you see alpine meadows, the encroaching species is the natural species. Therefore, you're seeing an, a, a, a phenomena that is only there because of human activity. When you see the names of the plains and the prairies here in Clark County, those plains and prairies were only here because of human activity. So, yeah, it was our prescribed burns that kept things clear, that kept it maintained in this desired state. So, thank you. Today, in, you know, in Chinook world, um, because we weren't, our treaties weren't ratified and, and uh, we're not fairly recognized, you know, we don't have a lot of the resources that we, uh, would, you know, other tribes would have. But we feel, we know the importance of what the, the work that the ancestors have done in the past. And... Today, uh, I'm proud to say that I've really worked hard to get our Natural Resources and Food Sustainability Committee together. And we understand the fact that if you're not out there working that Wapato and 
you know, just working it every day that when you dig down there today, you're just going to come up with a skinny little tuber rather than a bulb, and that we need to revisit those fields and the camas fields. And I'm really proud to say that uh, last weekend our, our folks were out gathering nettle, the first nettle of the year, the small nettle that they're going to be making soups and salads with. And next step will be the fiddle ferns. And we're going to get out there and we're going to connect with all those natural resources that we have out there, all that food and all that medicine. And it's clear, it's clear there's a proper way to do it. You know, Chinook people, people ask, well, what does it mean to be Chinook? What did it mean in the old days to be Chinook? And it was to live by taboos. We had a lot of taboos that we lived by on how we gathered, what, how we ate, what we did, what we did in the morning when we got up. Things that we can't live by today, but we're trying to bring some of them back that we can live by in this modern world. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to say that we're going to get out there, we're going to reconnect, and we're going to reconnect with our people. You know, we're, we're a landless tribe, and so our people have been dispersed over the years, and we want to bring them back. We want to bring them back knowing that this, this Mother Earth will provide for us as long as we treat her right and that we respect. And the spirituality, you know, I, often I talk to people about, you know, even cedar bark gathering and so forth. You know, they think it's just a process. I know it's a connection. It's spirituality. You're connecting with that tree. You're asking for permission to pull that piece of bark. And then you leave it with a song or some tobacco, a gift, because you want to do the things right and you want to make that connection. Um, you know, and, and when we make our canoes, you know, and when we make our houses, we're gathering out there in the forest to do that. We respect the fact that these, these items were made, these things were made out of a living tree, so therefore they have a soul, and we bless them and we treat them right today. So um, it's really important to connect with the ancestors of spirit and get that knowledge back out to our people. We want our people thirsting to get out there. It's, it's good to see our people excited to get out and do gatherings uh, this, this spring and this fall. Uh, there's a lot of ways we can go with this question. It's pretty open. Um... I think I will talk uh, about the change. Um, I don't know if you all are well are aware of how much the landscape has changed in the last 200 years uh, from what it was. Um, before, the river systems were a lot slower, a lot more woody debris in the rivers, and the water flowed slower, and so it stuck around longer. There were more areas for plants and animals and other things to grow. And, and thrive in the rivers. Uh, the land, too, was different. Uh, it wasn't cleared of, uh, of debris, of rocks, of tree stumps. It was, um, and there weren't sort of, you know, like for the valley alone, there wasn't a monocrop across the valley. Everything was like a diversity of, of species and stuff. And now we have it is very different. You know, it's all monocropped into fields of these sort of uh, single-use crops that go on for several years, and they change them up a little bit, and they uh, exhaust the soil and nutrients, and there's really no call-outs for you know, the native world. And so uh, things are very much different than they, than they used to be. We're now poisoning the soils, poisoning the rivers, um, and tribes are dealing with this stuff. I mean, we have a responsibility to these places because we have our... Stories say that, you know, uh, the rivers are our are, are lifeblood. They are where we come from. If it wasn't for the water and for the rivers, we wouldn't be who we are today. Uh, some, some, we know the stories of these rivers going back tens of thousands of years. 
about we've seen you know the bridge of the gods fall down we've seen the ice flows we've seen volcanoes we've seen, so we have been around here for a very long time some tribes say since time immemorial we've been around so that's you know if you're talking 12 15,000 years that's pretty much forever and so and yet those stories of our landscape were ignored when you know settlers came here when you know the scientists began coming in they began sort of collecting all of our stuff our arrowheads our skulls or all those things that they thought were interesting that could fit in their museums they even collected our stories but then they said that our stories were not really anything there's nothing truthful in them at all there's not they're just mythology like greek mythology and so they discounted all that knowledge for decades and we're still dealing with that I'm now the first PhD in my tribe at Grand Ronde and I'm now the first people first person people really studying the stories of my tribe looking at those stories for how they talk tell us about history how they tell us about how to live in the landscape whether not the stories are of modern history or older history and realizing you know that we're 150 200 years into, into colonization and science has discounted this stuff for so long and the stories really are telling us how we're supposed to be living with the world not against it not destroying it but living with it and we, and and civilization just ignored all that the american civilization just kind of put, put that aside we only thought they only thought of it as poetry as only poetry not as telling us our place in the world, our relationship with the world, as if, you know, as the world around us, the animals and plants, and everything has a spirit, and that we are supposed to be, you know, treating the world and the, and the earth as an, another equal being or another being, a living being. And everybody just sounded that. I mean, we, everybody just said, or at least not the native people, but all the other people just said that that's not, that's just mythology. We're not going to listen to that. Nowadays, we're seeing the effects of all that, aren't we? You know, uh, our forests are, are, are burning down. You know, uh, we're having this sort of massive firestorms every, every summer. You know, and that's because they stopped us from doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be setting fire to the landscape. We're supposed to be, you know, what they call cool burnings are supposed to be burning off the excess so that we can sort of prepare the world for the next generation. We're supposed to be doing that. And it's going to take some time for society, our government, people to understand that and, and to begin backing the, this notion of, of preparing the world appropriately for living with it, not living against it. And, and that, I think, cannot be emphasized enough. That's a philosophy. That's a different philosophy you know, outside of capitalism. We're not, we're not going to destroy everything to make resources out of it and, and ship it all to, to China. We're actually going to find a way to live with it so that we can survive into the next generations. I think that needs to be said. And I think that I'm not sure what it's going to take. Uh, I've, I, I talk to my classes all the time at, at OSU and 
I say, you know, do you think that we can um, decolonize? And, and, and almost 100% of the students are all like, no, it's not possible. I mean, colonization it was too deep, and there's just too much there. I mean, nobody's going to give up their stuff in order to, you know, live a different lifestyle. And that may be the case now, but I think that we need to start. Otherwise, there won't be a landscape for us to live with. There's not going to be an earth here unless we start now. Sorry, it went to a really dark place. But I'm just saying that, that that's, that's what we're looking at, though. We need to really start. Like, the tribes are really working to restore themselves, restore the land. That's our job to sort of restore the land for the next generation. And we're doing that. And we need everybody to sort of help us with that, too. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I was doing a presentation with another group, and something occurred to me. Tana got to hear this. I've been a tribal leader. I was elected to tribal council in 1974. And one of the words that's I don't think it's been used four or five times in 45 years on our tribal council, can't. If you hang around us, you will not hear can't. You might hear we can't afford it, we don't want it. You will never hear. It is beyond our ability. You know, so while David talks about a dark place, yeah, we have worries, but we don't live in a dark place. I can tell you that uh, we, you know, we're always looking for a way, and we will find a way. The, when Lewis and Clark got here, they come down the river and they stop and they look and they go, oh, these people are so fortunate. Look at this, plantations of, of camas and there's wapato and everything they want is here. They are so lucky. They were seeing our agriculture and because they didn't see a John Deere tractor parked out back, they didn't know it. You know, uh, as, as David said, we worked in, in concert with nature. We didn't work in conflict. When the Bay Company come here, they brought their seeds from Europe and there would be crop failures. You're not going to have a crop failure with Camas or Wapato. You know, it, it just... It's a totally different philosophy. You've got to conquer nature. Well, you really won't. So, thank you. Our, our experience recently is that uh, uh, a lot of landowners, private landowners, are realizing the importance of having, you know, uh, native influence on their lands. And we've had some really, uh, uh, some foresters come to us that had uh, thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of acres and uh, ask us, they said, you know, our investors want Chinook presence on their land. They want you to go and gather the resources and, and teach us how to take care of the land. So we're having partners help us do that, you know, give us that. You know, there may be federal lands that we can't go on today as a non-recognized tribe, but there's private lands that need help, and these people realize that they need help. We also have other partners that see you know, that there's, there's lands that need to be kept natural and taken care of, and they're partnering to get that land towards Chinook. And uh, uh, some people see this land as undeveloped. We see it as 
real huge resources, you know, one, one, one small piece down at the coast that we were looking at. We're just feeling blessed that it's the best basket grass that there is out there to gather and that we can get out there and, and be a part of that again. So I think uh, uh, there's, a, there, there's a feeling now that there's a real value of having native people on, on people's land to show them how to bring it back, you know, do the right thing. And uh, um, we're pretty proud and we're, we're willing to do that. Yeah, we have, we have a lot of um, activities happening around Ron. Now we're actually monitoring the river, trying to monitor salmon come, come up the Yampa River and you know, the tribe bought some property at the falls. They're trying to sort of restore that activity at the falls where our Clackless people were from there. And uh, it's all part of a sort of a, you know, you know, the tribes are sort of retracted into reservations or smaller communities for the longest time. Not allowed to really leave the reservation legally for 100, 100 years or so. And so now that we are sort of restored, we have some power, we have some money, we're starting to reach outwards again trying to provide some sort of influence in in our area and it it's working a little better in some places than others in any country um and uh but we are we are studying the landscape we are looking where wapato's growing to see if we what we can do to help those wapato stands you know we're trying to figure out what, if there's pollutants in the wapato what, you know, what we have to do to to uh to bring that stuff back um as a crop uh, the tribe can use as as a food source um, Camas also is being sort of restored, working on projects with uh, Willamette National Forest and with other landowners to sort of bring back Camas and to do sort of regular cultural sort of gathering of Camas. Uh, right now, that there's really only ceremonial use of the plants. Um, I don't know of anybody that's living on it, so that's another thing, another sort of step forward we have to take at some point. We need to start having it as a regular food source, you know, for the food for the people. Um, and I think more development needs to happen in, in terms of how do, how do we, I don't, I, would want, I hate to see it commercialized, but how do we, we have an activity where we can actually have it as a regular food source where people are given sort of credit for going out and getting their own food um, and, and are able to keep their jobs too because in today's society it's really difficult to sort of, you know, sort of leave your job and go, I'm going to go camas picking, you know, or camas digging. <laughs> it's just not possible for some people. So um, that's a challenge. And uh, so there's lots of little things here we need to work on because um, these are sort of looking at more of a wild plant situation. They don't really take right now to, um, to agriculture. So, uh, and I'm not sure we're going to want to really go that way with all of our plants because it would take something away from it too. Um, but uh, something could be done to sort of bring that back as a regular food source. I want to ask a, a clarifying question because I think when you hear a lot of writings from early settlers and explorers, they talk about, they describe the Columbia River system as a kind of Eden, a kind of pristine, untouched Eden. And when today we think of Western <coughs> environmentalism and conservation and preservation, I think of leave the land alone, protect it, and keep the people out. That if you, keep, if you get people in there, they're only going to do bad things. But what I'm hearing you talk about is something different, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I've actually spoken on this at uh, Mount Rainier. Uh, the early explorers thought they were seeing an untouched ground, and no. They were seeing 
a maintained environment, it's important to remember the vitality of the Columbia River. When Lewis and Clark came down the river, they encountered more people on the Columbia River than they did on the rest of their journey. Say that out loud to yourself. From just Idaho and Washington, Oregon, they encountered more people. This was an incredibly rich place. There's a story about a, a missionary, might have been Whitman, talking to an old man, trying to win him over to Christianity. And they're telling him, and if you live this way, you'll get all of this. And they're describing the Garden of Eden. And the old man looked around and said, I've got all that right here. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's, it's an incredible misperception that, no, this, this wasn't untouched. It wasn't, it was maintained, but it was maintained at a level that it could run on in perpetuity. There was nothing destructive here. It was all about stability, all about providing for the long term. Our people have distant memory of hard times to where they would do without. And so their nature was conservation. One of the things we had here that the settlers didn't bring with them. We had food preservation technology 100 plus years ahead of theirs. At Celilo, and I believe that's where it come from, they could process pounded salmon that we keep for two to three years. Okay? You know, Wapato was harvested and put into commercial bricks. We marketed it. Same with Camas. It was processed and put into commercial bricks. There were standardized sizes for this in our, in our food market. Uh, Things were done with the idea of for the long term. And in our world, long term meant for generations, not just years. Thank you. There's a lot of damage to be done in staying out of the forest, you know, and in today's world. I, you know, the Richfield Wildlife Refuge, for uh, an example, there's a lot of invasive species that have come in and are choking out those native plants. So we need to go in there and identify where those species are and actually extract those invasive species by hand, you know, so that you don't, uh, you know, damage the other plants with chemicals or other, other processes. So in order to protect what we had thousands of years ago, we need to go out there and get those invasive species away. We see that on the Willapaw Bay with ghost shrimp, you know, attacking our oyster fields and, and uh, you know, just, just things coming in that, you know, on ships or whatever, you know, that we need to deal with. And uh, we're not going to know where that's at or what work needs to be done if we're not out in the forest taking care of that forest. Yeah, I've been uh, working with um, some of the, the forest, I mean, the, the Oak Savannah folks that want, you know, people buy a piece of property and they want to sort of redevelop the Oak Savannah. And a couple of years ago it occurred to me, I'm like, well, this is an interesting idea to sort of restore this sort of Oak Savannah, but there's always a but, right? Uh, but um, what are you going to do with it? I mean, are you going to eat the are you going to eat the acorns? Because that's why the tribes actually had oak savannas because they would sort of set fire to the prairies. The oaks would survive. The oaks would actually have a better crop because the set fire was set. There'd be a few sort of like root plants that would probably survive under the oaks, 
you know, like Camas and Oaks really go really, really well together. Uh, but if people today are, are doing, are trying to sort of restore this oak savanna on a piece of property, maybe it's too overgrown with other stuff like blackberries or whatever, are they going to actually start using it for food? Because that's what, why the tribes did that stuff. And if they're not, then why are you doing that? What's the point? Is it just going to be a, a picture? You know, this sort of picturesque landscape where people may walk on a trail through and, and just look at it? And I guess that's a purpose. But I think that at some level, I mean, people need to really, really think about that. You know, what, what are you actually doing when you're restoring something? You're not restoring the assumed pristine landscape. You're trying to restore this landscape that was absolutely sort of managed by tribal peoples. That, you know, they set fire to it in the fall, usually sort of late September, what we call late September now. And sort of every year, this fire would run across the prairies and would clear off all the prairies of all this excess vegetation, provide a sort of restorative balance to the landscape, and then that also produced more food in, in the next uh, seasons uh, from, those, from those plants that survived, like the oaks. And uh, maybe that's not what you need to be doing with that landscape. Maybe you need to be producing other stuff from it, or maybe you need to let it go back to being wild, you know, get rid of the invasives and let it go back to being wild. Because if you're not going to use the food, then you're just basically wasting the food. Or maybe what we need to be doing instead is developing some use for all that those acorns. You know, developing uh, acorn meal that we, you know, that we ha- have in, in sort of community stores. Maybe uh, some of these organic stores around here would love to have acorn meal, right? It, it's tough to make, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it, takes a, it takes a while to, to get there to the actual meal. But anyway, but the point is, you know, we really have to really think this stuff, about this stuff. I mean, this is not, uh, it's not an easy thing to think about. It's, you know, re- restoration is fun to think about. It's nice. But it, what are you doing with that? Are you allowing people, are you allowing tribal people to come in and sort of gather the vegetables? That may be one way to go. Um, are you going to somehow start using acorns yourself? Um, I mean, what are you doing? And, and that's, that goes back to some of that, that stuff about um, uh, whether or not you're, you're just trying to get this sort of pristine, you know, picture-perfect landscape or not. That was Oregon State University historian David Lewis, who is a member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. We also heard from Mike Ayal, a Cowlitz Tribal Council member and historian, and Sam Robinson, vice chair of the Chinook Indian Nation. A special thanks to our host for this Confluence Story Gathering, the Vancouver Water Resources Education Center, and to our partners, the Columbia Land Trust and the Watershed Alliance of Southwest Washington. And thanks to our sponsor, the Cowlitz Tribe Arts and Education Fund. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts.